The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 8 this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open up your Bible. Uh, follow along with me. We'll be in verses 18 through 22. Uh, chapter 8, uh, we looked at it last week. The Lord... Uh, well, Matthew is recording the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and at chapter 8 he begins telling story after story after story of the miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, the story of a leper, a man with leprosy who was healed. The story of a centurion with a servant who was sick that the centurion said, Jesus, if you just say the words, he'll be made well, he'll be made uh, healed. And, and Jesus spoke, and the centurion's servant was healed story of Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever whom Jesus touched and the fever was removed. Stories of the demon-possessed and the sick that came to Jesus for healing. And then after the passage we look to, there's even more miracles we'll look to in the weeks ahead where, where the uh, storm on the sea is calmed by the words of Jesus. Where a man that is demon-possessed, his, uh, the demons are cast out. Where a man who is lame is, is made to walk. And I reminded you last week that, that Peter, or I'm sorry, rather, Matthew was writing in order to show us again and again and again that there's something special about this man, Jesus, that he's more than just a normal, regular human being like everybody else. He truly is, as that song, uh, song was just sung, he, he truly is the Son of God incarnate. Uh, he is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the, the, the Redeemer of Israel. Matthew has shown us in his birth, in his baptism, even in his uh, overcoming Satan and the temptation uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Christ even. Chapter 7 concludes that the crowd was left astonished because he taught as one having authority. And not like anybody else, not like the scribes or the Pharisees, in his teaching he validated he is the Christ. Now in his miracles he is evidencing that he truly is the Christ. It is one thing to say something. And it's another thing to do it. I could say something, but to heal leprosy, to make a, a, a man that can't walk, to walk, Jesus' works validated his words. And so it's fitting that in chapter 8 we see all these examples of who Jesus is and his miraculous power to heal and to, to cast out demons, his authority over Physical sickness, even nature itself, his authority over the demons is all, all validated, all vindicated in these stories. But, but interestingly, verses 18 through 22 seemingly are weirdly placed. They come in the middle of all of these stories of miracles, and, and it's really a, a hard turn when we read these verses that Matthew is making intentionally and then including some hard teachings from the Lord Jesus. Why? What is his point? Let's read them. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. In the middle of story after story of Jesus doing miracles, it says this, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side, the other side of the sea. And when a certain scribe came, uh, then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, 
and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You have actually read the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg in October of the year 1517. It was from that act that the whole Protestant Reformation would come, was sparked. I encourage you to read those sometimes, uh, but, but, but those even that have read those 95 theses, uh, even myself, have given little attention to six months after that occasion, when Luther was called before a group of people in order to uh, debate what he posted, in order for the church even to have a rebuttal against the grievances that he posted as he studied the Word of God and really what those 95 Theses were was, was Martin Luther was saying, these are areas where the church isn't aligning with what I have studied and what I have read in the Scriptures, in the Word of God itself. And so six months later, at what is called the Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther was given the opportunity to expound upon those theses and also sort of lay out what he, what he saw doctrinally as far as what the Word of God teaches. Carl Truman, who is a church historian, wrote these words about what Martin Luther proposed there. He, he said that in this disputation, Luther presented his most glorious contribution to theological discourse. That sounds pretty important, right? His most glorious contribution to theological discourse. When a church historian says that of a man who wrote a ton, uh, you know it's something you ought to pay attention to. And unfortunately in church, we seldom, you might not even heard what I'm about to present to you, but I encourage you to think about it. Martin, Martin Luther, in the ending of this disputation, just a, a few lines even of what he said, um, conveyed two different ways of thinking about God, two different theologies. One he called a theology of glory. The other he called a theology of the cross. It's not too difficult. A theology of glory, a theology is a way of thinking about life and God, specifically God in relation to who we are and what we are. A theology of, of glory and a theology of the cross. And I want to define these just really simply and briefly for sake of time this morning because I think they're, they're written over even these words of Jesus that we're about to dive into. The theology of glory, he said, is a view of God that says God will always do what we think He ought to do. God's going to always do what you think He ought to do. So what do we think God ought to do? We think God ought to heal. God ought to bless. God ought to give us uh, prosperity and, and riches and wealth and, and health and success and, and victory. A theology of glory says God is always going to do what we think He ought to do, and that's the means of His favor, of, of Him revealing Himself, is that He's always going to do the thing we think He should do, the, the thing that leads to our blessing and, and prosperity and health and success, success, that we should expect great things from God all the, to the time. The theology of glory, as opposed to a theology of the cross, which he says is a view of God that says often God does the complete opposite 
of what we think he ought to do. That God actually chooses to reveal himself in a unique and a powerful way, not through our strength, but through our weakness. Right? Not, not through our blessings, but through our sufferings. Not through our exaltation, but through our humiliation. Not through our victories, but through our defeats. And he calls it a theology of the cross because he, he rightly says the cross of Christ is where this is uh, most greatly evidenced. That as we look to the cross of Christ, it is not what we think God should have done. It's not what, what we would say was a, a victorious moment. The most wicked, atrocious act that ever could be committed was committed where the Son of God was literally crucified by the ones who He created by the ones He came to redeem, the ones He came to save, the one that He was Lord and He was King and He was Savior, He was God incarnate, and yet humanity crucified Him. It looked as if through the suffering of the cross that, that Satan had won. It seemed as if death was victorious. And yet it was in that act that God was revealing Himself in a greater way than had ever been manifested before. It was in that act of suffering that God's glory even was being manifested in a way that, that it was greater than it had ever been manifested, made, made known before. That in the, the, the crucified and buried and resurrected Christ, we see the means by which sinful man is reconciled to holy God. We see the, the grace and the love and the mercy of God poured out while also understanding the wrath of God and the holiness of God and the, the justice of God. In that act of suffering, there was a greater revelation of God. God manifesting Himself in and through. A theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. Can you imagine being in this crowd in Matthew chapter 8 that is following Jesus? Right? Put yourself there for just a moment. It's hard to do. Maybe you've watched The, the Chosen. Um, I would commend it to you and say it's good to watch. I would caution you that they do add a lot of extra narrative, a lot of things that are extra biblical, um, that are based upon speculation. And, and, and it's healthy in a way, beneficial in a way, but it does paint a picture that's extra biblical of how some of these events and even personalities were. And so there's a danger in that, that it adds to and, and can kind of bias your view of different characters, even like Matthew, for instance, in that, that portrayal of who Matthew was. Not much of that's really based upon a biblical understanding of who Matthew was. But nonetheless, not to go down a rabbit hole there, uh, just to say if you've watched that, it does give you, in a good way, a sense of the excitement building around the ministry early on of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was of the common people, and yet he taught in a way that surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees. He had a wisdom of God that, that surpassed any other teacher, any other rabbi, any other leader of that day and age. And the people saw that. The people heard that in the, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was undeniable. Even the Sermon on the Mount at the ending, it says it left the people astonished. And then to know, imagine that you knew a, a friend of yours who, who had gotten leprosy. 
And you literally held a service that was his funeral because he was, he was uh, kicked out of the society of the day. He was kicked out of town. You knew you were never to see that person again. They were, they were kicked out to go die, even though it would be a slow and torturous death. And you had heard recently that his body even was showing completely the signs of this leprosy. He was literally decaying before your eyes. And yet you knew that Jesus had touched that man and he was healed. You knew of a man that couldn't walk from birth. And yet he was jumping around saying Jesus was the one who had done it. And you knew of the centurion who said, my servant who was back in my homeland was healed from from Jesus just saying the word who was back or at his house there in the Roman area of Palestine. You you heard of the demon-possessed that you knew were maniacs literally out of their mind, and yet Jesus, with a word, had cast the demons out and brought them to a right understanding, to a right mind. You you knew the glory of Christ. And the the common-day expectation in that time was that the, the Christ, the Messiah, would be the one who would come and who would physically, literally, then and there and then in the there and now, Freed them from the Roman bondage they were under. If you know much about that day and age, Rome had taken them over. They were paying tribute to Rome. Um, They were an oppressed people. And so they longed for the Messiah to come and free them, come and restore Israel in a way where the kingdom of David would be reestablished literally then and there, and and Christ would rule and reign, and His people would rule and reign. They they looked to Jesus. If you can imagine being in that crowd, even the building of chapters 5 through 8 lead us to a, a theology of glory. It does. That God is working in the here and now to lead us to prosperity, to lead us to earthly restoration, to lead us to to health, wealth, and success. And I can only imagine the followers of Jesus, this crowd, and the longings and the anticipations that they had of of that expectation of what Christ would do for them, that it was driving their following of Jesus. And so I believe very intentionally Matthew interjects in the middle of all of these grand examples of the the miraculous power of God these two conversations with these two wannabe disciples who came to Jesus desiring to follow Him, and yet Jesus does not commend their heart to follow Him. Jesus actually discourages them. Jesus actually confronts them over a false view of what it really meant to follow Christ. You see, everybody, everybody in Matthew chapter 8 wanted to follow Jesus, but nobody knew what that really meant. They didn't know that Christ would be led to a hill called Calvary. They didn't understand that He would be mocked and despised and rejected. They they did not know that this first coming of Christ was going to end not in an earthly rule and reign of Jesus, but in a crucifixion, in a death, and in a burial where He did not even have a tomb to lay His head. You say they came seeking a theology of glory, and Christ is going to confront them with a theology of the cross. And as it's recorded even for our reading, our admonition this morning, the same is true of us. We, we come to God often with a theology of glory. We come to Him seeking something from Him. And this morning He is confronting us 
even discouraging us in our, our juvenile pursuit of Him with what is a theology of the cross. But a call to follow Christ, as Bonhoeffer said it, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die, is a call not to glory in the here and now. It's actually a call to, to, to death, a call to crucifixion, a call to suffering. I want you to count the cost of the calling of God upon your life as a Christian, as a believer this morning. Notice firstly from this first disciple the hardship of his calling. That it is a call to suffer. The hardship of his calling. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go, Jesus, teacher, didn't even understand fully who he was, I will follow you. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus discourages his, what I would say was a juvenile, an immature commitment to follow him. Jesus says, you don't understand what you're even committing to. He says, foxes have a place to rest, and the birds of the air, they have a nest, but me, the Son of Man, He says, I have nowhere to lay my head. And He's speaking of the hardship even of His earthly ministry, that He didn't have a, a home that He would rest in, that He literally went from place to place to place, often sleeping under the stars even, as He was teaching and as He was doing these miracles. The, the scribe would be a person who had garnished respect in the community. The scribe was one to whom others would look to for answers as far as what the Word of God teaches. And He's saying to this scribe, Listen, you don't understand the hardship of the life that I'm living that you're, you're committing to. And even more so, in the big picture of things, I think it's really fulfilled in the fact that Jesus came unto His own and His own received Him not. That Christ knew this first coming would end in crucifixion. He came to give His life a ransom for sinners. And in a way, He's looking to this man making this commitment, and He's saying to this man, you, you don't know what you're committing to. You can't go where I and going to go. This first disciple, I would say, was willing but short-sighted. He was willing but short-sighted. He was ignorant of what he was really committing to. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the teaching. And that drew him to the awe and the splendor of it all and wanting to be a part of it. But he knew nothing of what a true commitment to Christ would entail. He was unprepared. He was unready for what would come. His proclamation here, it was a, a rash commitment. He says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. He had no idea where Jesus was going. And I think of people even that, I don't know if I should say this, because maybe some of you are in here right now. I don't think so, because most of them have left. But the people that, that their first time here in the church were like, when I was driving by, I know God led me to this place. I want to I become a member. And it's the first time they're here. And I'm thinking like, you don't even know who we are. You don't know if I'm preaching heresy from the pulpit every Sunday. You've only been here one Sunday. A, a rash commitment that, that is made on an emotionally driven sort of experience of how they feel in the moment. That is my understanding of what this man was experiencing and doing here. 
Lord, I've, I've seen this miracle. I'm amazed by it. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Foxes have a place and the birds of the air have a place, but I don't have a place. And if you're following after me, you will not have a place. You see, this man came to Christ seeking a, a, a theology of glory, and Jesus confronts him with the theology of the cross. You realize as you read your Bible all throughout the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament does it ever make following Jesus look like an easy thing. Actually, the complete opposite is done. The Bible warns us over and over and over again about just how hard it really is to follow Christ in this world, to follow Christ in this dark and fallen age in which we live. John 15 and verse 18, Jesus warned the world hated me, it will hate you too. In Acts 14 and verse 22, it says it's through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not through wealth, health, and prosperity that we enter the kingdom of God. No, in this broken, fallen world, as we turn to the Lord and pursue Christ, it's actually through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 puts it pretty clearly. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That there will be a greater suffering that will come upon you because of your pursuit of Christ than if you were to live in the world as the world of the world. Now, we, don't, we don't give those warnings when we're getting evangelistic calls. We do just the opposite. We cover those, those warnings and those discouragements even to pursue Christ. We cover those up. We have become so commercialized in our American Christianity. We have so incentivized Christianity that, that we end up making, making uh, following Jesus as simple as ABC, as simple as repeating a, a prayer even, and we, we incentivize it with all of these grand blessings. Don't you want forgiveness? Don't you want heaven? Don't you want meaning in your life? Don't you want purpose? Don't you want... And we get all of this, all of this, this reward that we paint this logical picture before a person that anybody in their right mind would say, yeah, I want those. All I have to do is say this prayer. I'll say it. It's so commercialized and incentivized. That, and then we, we, we wonder in confusion at all the people who have named the name of Christ and yet aren't really following Him. Who, who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, and yet they're living their life just like an atheist would, just like a, a, a lost person does. Never do we rightly warn of the difficulty of following Jesus. That it really is a call to take up your cross daily and follow after Him. It's a call, a call to, to die daily, that, that if you answer this call, you will be mocked and you will be persecuted by this world. You will not enjoy the pleasures of sin like you used to and like everybody else around you is, and you will actually endure greater suffering, greater persecution for turning to Christ in this life than you will enjoy blessings and prosperity and success. Oswald Chambers puts it pretty well. A devotion he wrote in, on Mark 10 and verse 28, a parallel passage even to this. 
he writes these words. He says, Beware of an abandonment which has the commercial spirit in it. An abandonment meaning an abandoning of this life, of the things of this life to follow after Christ. He says, Beware of an abandonment which has the commercial spirit in it. I am going to give myself to God because I want to be delivered from sin, because I want to be made holy. He says, all of that is the result of being right with God, but that spirit is not of the essential nature of Christianity. Abandonment is not for anything at all. We have got so commercialized that we only go to God for something from Him and not for Him. Let me read that one again. We have gotten so commercialized that we only go to God for something from Him and not for Him. It is like saying, no, Lord, I don't want you. I want myself, but I want myself clean and filled with the Holy Ghost. I want to be put in your showroom and be able to say, this is what God has done for me. And he concludes and he says, if we only give up something to God because we want more back from Him, there is nothing of the Holy Spirit in our abandonment. It is miserable, commercial self-interest miserable, commercial self-interest. I can tell you it fills stadiums, literally stadiums of people that come to hear commercialized self-interest. The gospel being presented in a way where it is only about the benefits that it brings to you to live your best life now. We have marketed Christianity like Phil Swift markets Flex Seal. How many of you know who Phil Swift is? Please tell me you've seen the commercials. The guy is in a boat that he literally cut the bottom out of and put a screen in and he paints it in his Flex Seal and he's floating in his boat as a demonstration of the stickiness and what this little Flex Seal stuff can do. He stands on the Hoover Dam and he says, it's like having the Hoover Dam in a can. He has got the catchphrases, the catch lines, the salesman of all salesmen. I don't even need Flex Seal, but I think I want to order it after I watch one of those commercials. And then you get to the end. And it's, but wait, there's more. If you buy now, we'll double your order. You know, I've had people, when I tell them I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, they're like, oh, you're just like a salesperson for Jesus. And I kind of squirm on the inside when somebody says that. Like I, I have to marketize Jesus in the gospel and, and commercialize it and incentivize it and be a, a Phil Swift in the presentation of the gospel to convince you that it's worthy, to convince you to, to receive it. We, we read the Bible, and the Bible does no such thing. Jesus didn't market the gospel. He just simply proclaimed the truth of God, and he let it fall where it would fall. He didn't make his ministry filled with all sorts of gimmicky stuff in order to attract the masses. He he simply taught the truth of God. He warned them of the difficulty they would face. He actually did the opposite of removing barriers from people turning. He actually set up barriers. He actually discouraged these two to say, do you really understand what you're committing to? The birds of the air have a place and the, the, the foxes have a place to rest, but the Son of Man doesn't. If you come after me, it means you won't either. 
And he says to this other man we're about to look to uh, in just a moment, he, he says to them, hey, you've got a busyness about life that you're concerned with, but if you're going to follow after me, let the dead bury the dead. We'll get there in a moment. He actually convinced them not to come. Following Jesus is hard, and it will be difficult. This passage is a call to be prepared to suffer, and to suffer even more so for our following of Christ than we would if we weren't following Him. The, prior, uh, the hardship of His calling, notice secondly now, the second example, the priority of His calling. The priority of His calling. The second disciple really gives us an example that, that we must commit wholeheartedly. That, that we can't commit half-heartedly. That, that it's not merely about making Jesus a little part of our life. And you know, He's just a part of everything that we're doing. That that isn't true Christianity. That, that a true turning to Christ is, is making Christ Lord. Is, is making Christ Lord of everything. A complete surrendering to to him. The second disciple, I would say, was willing but preoccupied. The first was willing but short-sighted. The second, willing but preoccupied. But let's look to what the Scriptures say about them. Then a, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now there's some, like John MacArthur even, that believes that's an idiom that means let me go and and take care of the inheritance my father left. There is some evidence in some writing that that was an, an idiom, a common expression with a different meaning than we would take literally that, that represented that. Perhaps that's true, that this is dealing financially with an inheritance and the dealing of financial matters that had to be taken care of. Many with that throughout church history have just interpreted plainly by what's written, that this man's father died and, and the, the funeral service was occurring and he needed to first go and, and bury his father before following the Lord Jesus. Uh, another option would be this is a later ceremony um, after the first burial where the bones of that person were placed in an ossuary. The tomb would be cleared out and they would often even be used uh, for another body and, and the bones would then be put in an ossuary to be kept. One of those three is what Jesus is referring to, in, in which it doesn't fully matter because the same point is being made here when Jesus looks at him and says, No, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Uh, that even can be taken two different ways. It could be the literal dead bury the dead, and Jesus is just making a point. Obviously, the dead can't bury the dead, but he's saying, Hey, you've got to serve me while you're alive. Let the dead worry about the dead. Dead take care of the dead. Or it could be that he's talking about the spiritually dead. Let those that have not been brought to spiritual life take care of burying the physically dead. You have a greater calling. You have a greater purpose in your life now as you pursue me, as you follow in obedience to me. It's a strong point he's making. Do you realize what, the, what this man was desiring was not a bad thing? In the common routine of daily life, what he's wanting to do is actually a good and an honorable and a right and a fitting thing. No matter what it was, whether it was dealing with the financial matters, it's wise and right to be wise financial stewards. Uh, that was a right thing he would be called to do. Whether it was the tr actual burial of his father, that of course is a right and an honorable thing to do. But Jesus has a, a, a very hard word here. Let the dead bury the dead. It correlates well with the 
uh, word from Jesus will get to, where he says you must hate mother and father, brother and sister if you're going to come after me. He's speaking in strong language to make this point, that, that if you're going to follow Christ, Christ must be the priority. That he's to be number one above and beyond over everything in your life over every little possession that you have, over the good things of your life that are right and that are honorable, over the relationships of your life. Christ is to be first, and Christ is to be foremost. Jesus doesn't call us all to leave family behind. But if He did, are you willing to go? (laughs) Jesus said, I want you to go to some other country as a missionary. Are you willing to drop it all and to go? You ought to be. We ought to be. Willing but preoccupied. That sounds a lot like modern day American Christianity too, doesn't it? Willing but preoccupied. Well, I'd like to be in church more, but, you know, we've got ball games on the weekend and, you know, the kids got to be here and got to be there. I mean, I got three kids, and two of them played sports this past you know, few months. I know family life in this day and age is crazy hectic. It's crazy busy. And we get so busy, and we get our schedule so filled and jam-packed that, that the calling of God, that the pursuit of God, that the, the worshiping of God even takes a back seat. And the reality is this man's example is is filled within our church and community that that, that over and over again people are so preoccupied with even good things and honorable things that we could elevate and and look up to, but but when good things become uh, the the, the predominant thing, when good things take a priority over the best thing, they become idols, they become sin, they become wrong, they become that which keeps you from following Christ. And that is the whole point of what Jesus is making here with His disciples. Let the dead bury the dead. You need to follow me. You need to follow Jesus. Let the sports team take care of the sports team. You need to follow me. You need to follow Jesus. Let let the job take care of the job. You need to follow Christ. There's so many things in this life that are good and that are honorable that if we let take priority, they become bad because they keep us from what is best from He who is best from Christ. So many times I've heard, well, goodness, I'd love to serve in this ministry or do that, but I just don't have the time. And the truth is, no, you don't have the priorities. You've got the time. You've just got to rearrange your priorities. Two examples set forth here. One revealing to us the hardship of Christ's calling, the other revealing to us the priority. That we ought to expect suffering, that we ought to be committed wholeheartedly. I want to close by just reminding you of those two categories. Theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And asking you even, as we come to a time of invitation, to examine your own heart and your own life this morning and say, what is it that, where is it that I would fit under regarding those two categories? Have I come loving the teaching, loving the miracles, and that driving me to a sense of a theology of glory where I'm only coming to God for what I can get from Him? I'm only seeking Him because I want what He's got for me. 
You're here even this morning. You're here because you want the favor of God. You want the blessing of God. You want Him to bless your life and to make it a little bit better. You want Him to heal whatever you're going through and lead you through it. And you're really only here because of what you can get from God. And you came not because Christ came for you. You're here desiring more from Him, not not here to lay everything down before Him because you know He's worthy of your praise, He's worthy of your worship, He's worthy of, of everything that you are. You're not here to, to worship truly. You're here just because you think by being here, you're going to get something from Him. God is calling. <laughs> Trying to get somebody's attention this morning. Why are you here to seek something from God? Are you here because God has sought after you and you know He gave Christ to redeem you? You know Christ died on Calvary for your sins. Are you here for Him? Are you here because of Him? Do you desire His glory? Do you know that the calling He places upon your life might actually mean greater suffering? It might not mean you get the job promotion. It might mean you don't get the job promotion because your boss views you as a Christian lunatic. It might mean as a kid in school, you know, you're made fun of because you don't do the things everybody else is doing. And they look at you as a little Christian goody-two-shoes. And you know if you just did those things, you'd be fitting right in and you'd be the popular kid. But, but you don't because you'd rather endure suffering and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season because you know Christ suffered for you and you know the calling upon your life is that of suffering, not of glory. Christ didn't turn away so many that came to Him. He was left with just those 11 and a handful of others at the end, but, but they... They had truly come to Him. They were truly following Him. And what we see in the New Testament is they were the ones who turned the world upside down. And I think what's wrong with the church today is we've made the calling of Christ so easy. We've removed all of the barriers, all of the biblical even discouragements, all of the biblical warnings of what it really means. But we've got a church house filled with false converts. And I do want to just ask you this morning to search your heart say, have I really come to Christ for who He is? Or have I come to Him merely for what He can do for me? Heavenly Father, we come to You and I do pray that You would take Your Word and bring conviction. Lord, open up eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to truly understand the truth that we're looking to. It's a hard truth. We do want to see people come to You. We do want the lost to be saved, but that has led many down a road where we where we remove what it really means to come to You. Lord, many come to You only for what they can give, and they never come in a true repentance of their sin, never come in a true faith in who You are and what You've done for them through Christ. Lord, I ask this morning that You would convict where conviction is needed. If somebody's here, maybe that's your child, but they've gotten in a, in a bad habit of seeking You only for what they can get from You. They only turn to You when they need something. They need a prayer request answered. Suffer well for Christ's sake and to realize you often call us to find a hill 
immortality. Not, not some line of victory and prosperity. Lord, encourage those who are going through hard times, who are struggling, but to realize that's the call that you've given to us, is not to discourage them, but to take them back over, to know that it's in those seasons 